Okay, welcome to the Homemade Camera Podcast. Not sure what episode this is. This is my second take around introducing um, our guest for this evening, David Hancock. Uh, a lot of you guys might know him from YouTube, but we're going to get uh, real deep into the uh, Davidosphere today and find out about um, how he got into cameras and making things and um, a very influential YouTube channel and um, a new Kickstarter that he is running. So, um, David, welcome to the show. Um, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, how did you get into photography? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Ethan, and good to see you too, Graham. Um, so, my name is David Hancock from, from the David Hancock YouTube channel. I'm the primary person behind the channel, and I, I do, of course, get a lot of help from my wife on that. Uh, I've been a photographer for, well, if you go back to when I got my first camera, then it's been 33 years. And that, uh, that first camera was one of those little purple and black lake click disc cameras. Oh, oh, oh yes. yes. <laughs> Swanky camera. Nowhere to go but up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, then I progressed after that to a Minolta Weathermatic 110 before getting my uh, K1000. Was that one of those like yellow underwater yes. looking type of Minoltas? I think I have a Minolta Dual uh, AF or something like that. It's broken. Yeah, but... I've got one right. I've got one within <laughs> a couple feet of me. So how oh, yeah. old, how how old were you at the time? I was. It was my tenth birthday gift. Was that was that late click? And um, it was a uh, it was a gift from my aunt and uncle, my dad's sister. And uh, my dad did not want me to get a camera because he knew film was expensive, and I was enjoying using his his uh, DTL one thousand with no film in it. I didn't know at the time. And uh, <laughs> so, so my aunt and uncle knew I wanted a camera and they decided we're, we're just going to do this anyway. Yeah. And uh, that, that that's, like, uh, that's like giving the, the little kids at Christmas the toys that make noise. That's exactly you know, right. As, as long as you are not going to be present in the room, you can yes. get the noise toys. That, and that's the kind of uncle I'm going to be. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, all of the toys my brother does not want his kids to get. There Legos, we go. musical instruments. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it took off from there, and um, I did some photography courses in college. Uh, ended up. Wait, wait, let me let me backtrack yeah. for a second. Uh, where are you from? Where'd you go to oh, college? Yeah. So I grew up in Chicago. Uh, I've lived all over the country. I've lived on every three of the four coasts. I've, I've not lived on the Gulf Coast, but um, I've lived all over. So most of my childhood was in Chicago. Uh, also lived in Philly, North Carolina, outside of St. Louis. I did grad school in D.C., lived in California for 10 years. Now I'm in Denver. Uh, this is where I plan to stay. I will be carried out of here in an urn hopefully. And, uh, so I like it here. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, uh, so I grew up in Chicago and just started doing photography there, took a few courses. So I, I was taking college photography courses while I was in high school and, uh, then kind of put it away during college to focus on my English degrees and picked it back up after college. Um, and just, <clears throat> just would shoot whatever I could take photos of. Um, really picked it back up 
significantly when I got into digital photography with my Pentax K7 when that camera was released. So, what year uh, was that? Oh, approximate 2010. Mm -hmm. So that's that's that was a, the year that I started taking 15 to 20,000 photos per year on on each of my cameras. And now it's usually around 30,000 photos per and year. And before that, maybe it was just like vacations type of taking photos. Yeah, it was it was a couple dozen rolls of film a year, maybe maybe three dozen um, vacation mm -hmm. photos. Or I would just say I want to I had my dogs. I wanted to take photos of Hannah and Cheever. And so I'd go buy a few rolls of film for that. Mm -hmm. so. But so after that, that's uh, 30,000 pictures. That's like you're walking around with a camera every day over every your shoulder. Day. Yeah. 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 When I. um. But leading up to and then after I started my, my YouTube channel, I would literally take a camera with me everywhere. Uh, it's easy now with a cell phone. Back then, I didn't have a cell phone that had a camera built into it. Uh, mm -hmm. So it would be my K7 or one of the film film cameras that I had was always with me. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, and, and that I think is the best thing somebody who wants to get better at photography can do is always, always have a camera on them all the time. <laughs> yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. so that's the best advice I think anyone's ever going to get from anyone. I will not disagree. Um, and, and so are you living in Denver at this point? Yeah, we, we live outside in a little suburb of, of Denver. It's very quiet uh, life. We, uh, we live in a, a fairly nice apartment. I have so, wonderful views. I can, I, I'm in one of the buildings. I don't, there aren't that many. I, I, um, one of my buddies said he thinks there are either nine or 11 buildings in the air, in the whole of the metro area. They can see the entire front range from Devil's Head to Long's Peak. And oh. so I step out on my patio in the morning or in the evening. And uh, I, not right now because of all the wildfire smoke, but when the air is clear, we can see the entire front range from our patio. Uh, wow. We were exceedingly lucky that I, uh, I happened to call up the 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 apartment complex at the right, literally at the right time within a day of this unit becoming available and about half an hour before the next person called and said they were interested in it. The photographer's suite. So David, yes. do you uh, photograph that front range like uh, 20,000 times a year? Uh, no, no. Uh, I photographed Evans, which is due west of our patio. And we have a lovely view of, of that mountain, which has a wonderful profile. But um I don't actually photograph our view to share because I don't necessarily want anyone to triangulate where I live. But, um, <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah. but I do, I get out, when I photograph mountains, I don't like photographing them from far away. I want them to absolutely dominate the frame and be a major part of that image element. And that just means getting in the car, going out to a trailhead and getting closer to the mountains. Mm -hmm. Understood. So you're you're uh, more like of a classical uh, landscape. Guy. Yeah, very um, much so. And and when I started off photographing, uh, my mom got me all the Ansel Adams books, and I read them over and over, and just tons of photo books. And it was all really steeped in landscape work, and and I was enjoying that right off the bat. And now here I am, living in a place where it is impossible to take a a truly bad landscape photo without trying, um, okay. and uh, it's helped. I grew up in the Bronx reading Ansel Adams books when I was like 14, thinking I would be a nature photographer. It was like, I mean, what? <laughs> this is not, not happening back home. But um, yeah, I also find myself living um, 
you know, I don't know if you consider the Sandias the front range anymore or a different mountain set, but somewhere near the Rockies where things look uh, bananas and I, I just can't, you know, get used to it. You know what? Honestly, the front range, it's not even the prettiest mountains in Colorado, not by a yeah, long yeah. shot. I'm a big fan of Maroon Bells. Oh, yeah. Out there. Um, the San Juans for me, they they mm -hmm. just have these super dramatic jagged peaks. And I, I just wish they weren't such a long drive. So are you a backpacker, David? Yeah, I'll do day hikes. I, I have zero interest in sleeping uh, out days at a time because I have um, an an irrational fear of bears but um, <laughs> so, i'm mostly uh, afraid I, of wait, the cougars I, I don't think you can really <laughs> say that there is ever an irrational yeah, no but fear like bears either. bears are so chill particularly black bears in colorado like yeah uh, black bears we were, are fine we were Grizzlies, driving mm, polars, i don't think you're gonna no. find yeah, too many we, we don't get those down here yeah. yeah, no, polars you don't. You get, uh, wouldn't there be grizzlies relatively? I don't no. think, I don't I mean, think Colorado has any grizzlies right now. I, th yeah. I think someone saw a brown bear, but I could be wrong about that. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, if there are grizzlies, it's like one that has wandered in. But, you know, the last, uh, yeah. like, uh, grizzly bear was shot in the Sandias, like, in 1909 or 1919 or something yeah. like that. Um I yeah, am, I've dealt with black bears. Black bears, yeah, you're right. Are chill. Yeah. yeah, we we were driving through Durango a couple of years ago, and like this giant black bear just crosses the street and like goes to the dumpster behind a pizza place. And it was like, to, you know, there are also people crossing the street in the same like crosswalk, and it's just like, you know, member of the community just happened to be 800 pounds. That's right. <laughs> uh, claws. Um, but the cougars are always a little yeah. scary to me because they actually like will stalk you. But the moose. They're, they're the ones I'm the most afraid of. Interesting. I, um, I mean, if, if you want, uh, my, my closest encounter with wildlife since we moved out here was in Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was hiking up this trail, and, uh, and I get about 15 feet from this bush, and all of a sudden the bush stands up. Uh, at least that's what I thought. But it turned out it was just a gigantic bull elk that had been lying down behind the bush, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see its antlers. They just looked like branches. And so here is this gigantic, very angry bull elk standing above me 15, maybe at most 20 feet away, <laughs> which is well within the danger zone. The worst part was there were all of these people up on this, you know, 50, uh, 100 feet away from me with their cameras. I thought, oh, there must be an elk way out in that meadow there. Uh -huh. no, they just chose not to warn me that it was right in front of me. Yeah. Uh, well, that's how they get yeah. the good pictures. Exactly. Yeah, you're, was, you're about to be a meme, buddy. <laughs> let's get a picture of this guy with an antler in his belly. Yeah. And uh, so I just, I had my, the uh, Nikon, was it the F4 or the OM-1, one of those two with me, and uh, a telephoto lens. So I just started photographing away. And uh, as I, as I had a 500 millimeter on it, so it must. Have I'm been in the F4. danger zones. Exactly. <laughs> so what do I do? Away, I, I am too close to focus with this lens. Let's back up. Um, <laughs> so I, I did that, and it started following me, and uh, was clearly not a fan of the sound of the camera. So I just uh, finished the roll quickly, and uh, just put a tree between me and the the elk, and just moved trees between it as I backed away and eventually after about 10-15 minutes it decided it was not going to gore me and walked off into a meadow to go eat some grass. 
So, but uh, <laughs> I, I legitimately thought I was going to die. So I thought, well, I might as well make these last photos that I take really exciting. Right. Yeah. Hey, we got his film. <laughs> That's uh, right. Yeah. How do we develop this stuff? Jeez. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So okay. Okay, uh, so we have we have some idea about the, the photography you like yeah. to do, at least these days. Um, you're also a maker of things. Yes. Uh, how'd you get into, like, well, uh, when you were a kid, did you make models? Uh, are you an engineer of sorts? I mean, what uh, sort of inspired your, your making of machines? I, I made models a bit as a kid. More it was Legos, and I don't know if you remember the old toy constructs. Uh, constructs were one of our two, my brothers and my favorite toys were constructs and GI Joes. And so we would take the constructs and we would make these, these gigantic robots that were the same height as us out of the constructs. And then the GI Joes <laughs> would ride those. And so that was like the foundation for my, my learning about how to make basic boxes that interacted with each other. And, um, so I, I, that is, and that is also where my learning about building boxes ended. And, uh, but but I did get into making different pieces of camera kit early on, whether I, I have a, when I digitize film, I use my DSLR. And so I built a digitizing stand about 12 years ago that I still use today, just out of a spare and larger part, some mm -hmm. scrap wood and some plumbing components. Mm -hmm. And um, it works really beautifully when the downstairs neighbors aren't running their AC on full and shaking the floor. And uh, the... Um, so, so I just mount the camera and digitize the negatives. And, and I made some other things. Uh, I made, I've made a lot of different lenses and things like that uh, for my, adapted them for Sony E. And, um, but I got into building cameras because I wanted to learn large format. And there's a huge learning curve going into large format with a monorail or a field camera. And I was struggling immensely. Uh, one of my friends who's a photography professor, I was explaining to her my troubles and she just said, it's, it's film. It works like any other film. It's mm -hmm. like, and, um, but where I was getting into trouble was understanding how lens movements affected, uh, exposure and things like that. So, uh, at any rate, the, um, I got into pinhole work because I wanted to understand was, was it something with the cameras or was it something with my understanding? And so I built all of these experimental, uh, pinhole cameras uh, things like a, a, you know, like um, like a stereoscopic one that used eight by ten picture, you know, photo paper and different things like that. They were they were all fun, and uh, but when I built the ones that I have on Kickstarter right now, it was because um, one of one of my friends and subscribers couldn't use his cameras anymore, and and he hated that he couldn't get out and use take pictures. I had it in my head to build these, and I thought, well, what if I made these so that literally anyone could use them uh, how what would a camera like that look like and uh, i just sat down and just started revising these things to be easier and easier to use for everybody um one of the one of the big things is i, I wanted these also to be usable by people who have really poor eyesight which happens to most people as they start to get older so if, if i knew that i could make something that would be usable for people who who can't see well and who don't have really good finger dexterity, then people who can see well and can use their hands just fine would, would have no issue using it. It's like the classic um, product design exercise yes. where you're left-handed with a handful of oil trying to operate a toothbrush 
<laughs> push yes, buttons on a camera. Exactly it. Yeah. Um, this camera works great, but it's uh, real oily. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are all these weird hands? Hey, yeah. hey, David. I'm. I am. Promise. I'm going to let you get into the the yeah, real Kickstarter we'll pitch. But but my ori- the original question, sir, <laughs> was about um, building, and I, I uh, kind of want to talk a little bit about YouTube before we get to you know uh, yeah. the, the meat and potatoes of this. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm leaning on you to keep me on track. Okay. Okay. It is really easy for me to get off track. Um. Uh, Segway. No, so um, you started talking about building things out of uh, Connects and uh, G.I. Joe's, and like somehow that leapt over 30 years of building things into Kickstarter. But, you know, in in the meantime, like I think you probably build all sorts of complicated uh, audio and video setups. Looks like your desk is covered in cameras. I've heard tell of you building. you know, uh, your own lenses and other cameras. And uh, this is the first time I've heard about like a strap distribution company. I Um, also built my own computer. Uh, I don't uh, know if you have a good view of it, but um, I uh, probably not a good view, but I spec'd out and built my own computer uh, mm -hmm. from uh, individual components. Sure. So. Yeah, I have I have built a lot of different things. When I um, back in Illinois, I had a, uh, a half a garage to work with, and then later my own house. And uh, in in the house, I did a whole bunch of rehab projects. I shored up a foundation. Well, so I bought this ancient house. It was uh, it was built in 1938, and had been someone's vacation home. And it was just built on these piers in weak soil. And when I bought it, it was kind of doing this. So I noticed for, one day that the... Um, for those of you listening at home, oh, David is gesturing that his house was sagging, sagging a lot. Sagging <laughs> in the middle, yes. Yeah. And, and what, it, what it... So I set... Uh, Hannah and Cheever were my dogs, and, and I, were, I was tossing him a tennis ball, and I noticed Cheever dropped the tennis ball, and it rolled to the center of the floor. <laughs> Should not have done that. And uh, mm-hmm. what had happened was the floor... The, the, the house was on two foot, two foot joists, two foot on center. And at the front of the house, just the way that they had been cut, uh, there were knots, three in a row lined up in the first joist. And two of those joists had split at the knot, the one right at the door jam, and then the first one in. So my buddy and I, uh, we got under the house, we jacked it up with my car jacks until it was level. And then we laminated pressure treated wood around these old two-dimensional joists and like that was the most complicated project that i'd ever done building something and um uh but it was fun like doing things like that is a ton of fun since we don't own a house now uh you know building anything i can get my hands on whether it's a camera or my own lens boards or whatever uh kind of stimulates that part of my brain so okay um what what year was this that you were working on the house Oh, 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 06 to 09 is when I lived there. Uh, so that's a little bit pre-YouTube. A little bit, yeah. I started the channel in... I started the YouTube channel in 09, and then I really kicked it off with camera videos at the beginning of 2011. So it's it's been a decade for YouTube now. Well, and, and how'd that start? So it started off... I, would, I, I had lost my job in 09, and I had moved out to California for a new job, 
which led to me losing the house because I couldn't afford rent and mortgage at the same time with a new job. Uh, and, and I was in a pretty low period of my life. And I was talking to my brother about it. And I said, you know, I, what if I lose this job? You know, what's going to happen? And, and he said, well, you need some side income. Try YouTube. And I said, okay, why not? Uh, he said, I don't know what to talk about. He said, you like photography. You're good at it. Do a photography channel. And so I, I started off doing some really simple tutorials, literally knowing nothing whatsoever about how to make a video. And I would just take... And you started this like as a business. <laughs> uh, I just started it as, let's have fun with this thing. And if I make a few bucks, that's fine. And I think my first month I made $5.38 in royalties, um, which was, a, yes, yes, enough to keep me going. But not bad considering that my video setup was I would take a pillowcase and put it over the front of my desk and keyboard. And then I'd handhold my, my K7 and make this little 720p video of me doing something. Um, and then upgrade it to using a tripod with that oh, same setup. Big deal. It was, <laughs> it was uh, very fancy. Uh -huh. yeah, humble beginnings. Um, so, and, and then, I mean, I haven't changed that much. This is my current YouTube studio right uh -huh. here. And uh, so I've got the studio lights mounted around it and then different parts that I use. I also repair all the cameras that I, I repair here as well. So you can see I've got my repair. It's a very familiar looking set yes. of parts. <laughs> yes. <and> that's, <laughs> yeah. Appropriately organized. Yeah. So, Gotta have um, that Ronson oil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I have a... I use I don't use that to to work to fix anything. I use it to light pieces of metal on fire so that I can expand them and unscrew things that are stuck together. Not an idea I recommend for anyone. I use um, it to uh, dissolve grease that's like caked <laughs> in yeah. the ears. Yeah. Yes, that's that's what it should be used for. Um, but but over the years, I, I built up the subscriber base. And I would get feedback, like really legitimately good feedback from my subscribers. Hey, you're your angle sucks. Your lighting sucks. Or here's how <laughs> so wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Uh, so what you are? Oops. Uh, yeah. What, what you, you are there? telling me is that um, you had trolls <laughs> come to your True. channel, and and your take on it is I had some really good feedback. <laughs> they were honest with what I was doing wrong. Um, but, but more importantly than those guys was that people would ask me questions. I would, I would do a video and they would say, hey, what's this other thing that I'd not thought of talking about? So looking at, okay, here's how my lighting sucks. Here's how my setup sucks. I would improve those. And then here are the questions people have. Let's put that into my outline. And, and so I, I would revise my, my outline and my content presentation based on the, the the, the criticisms and the trolls that I was getting. And, uh, and that sort of thing has really helped make the channel what it is because the questions people ask were questions that everybody asks. And now I know how to address them in the videos. Um, I remember the, I think the most important question I was asked in any video comment was about two, two and a half years ago. And someone said, they were watching one of my 90s SLR videos, and those have a third video that's all about how the archaic menu system in those work. And they said, mm. this is great. You're telling me what the things in this menu are, but I don't understand at the end of the video how they affect my photography. Mm -hmm. And so I completely redid all of my camera manual outlines based on that comment so that at every single uh, point for 
for something that's not completely logical, I would remind myself to explain how that it doesn't thing presume affects. that the user knows exactly. photography either. Yep. Which is an interesting yeah. thing about like the old Nikon F manuals. They're like basically a photography manual with with uh, camera manual now. Like they won't expect like explain necessarily in a camera manual what aperture does, right? They'll just say the aperture button is here. Correct. Um, Interesting. And, and it, it, I found that there was a serious need for people to understand at a very remedial level how photography works. Mm -hmm. And um, not just film photography, but photography in general, because it, it is so easy now just to pick up a cell phone and not know what you're doing and still get a really good picture that when someone progresses into film, there's no forgiveness whatsoever, even with, you know, I'll forgive them. I will too, but the camera will not. <laughs> um, but uh, but but so I, I started trying to make things that were super remedial, so that people who were were just learning, instead of having this long flat learning curve, could just shoot straight up and get to a point where they were taking better photos right away. So it was it was this idea of like you you sort of distilled your uh, brand or method on YouTube to a not only like it's it's like a photography course and a camera manual in one <laughs> yeah i i kind of want to be youtube's photography professor uh, I, I this thing on your channel makes me chuckle every time hi i'm david hancock well, youtube's <laughs> photography professor uh but so but i mean so my my immediate question is aren't you then making a million uh, photo courses that are the same course mixed with this is like this is your photo course with you know this camera okay now we're going to go through the same photo course but we're going to hold this camera or, or you know like does, it, does that sort of frustrate it, you or, or it's very tedious uh -huh. but you uh, seem yeah, like a, a man for details though just yeah. looking at you <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well I mean I, 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 I have a professional background in technical writing and uh so are, are you it, a tech writer I'm, I'm a marketing writer but i work in a i've always cool. worked in exceedingly technical fields and so I, I came i come out of the engineering and construction fields and the marketing work that i do has to explain the technical ins and outs of work that the company is bidding on and because of you know what so i i, I worked for a decade with um, bulk fuel storage, transmission, and distribution. Uh huh. And the buzzwords are uh, gallons per minute flow, <laughs> you know, or or barrels. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Oh, see. it's exactly right. Yeah. So, but but I had to teach myself in a a writing sense. Uh, I had to be able to write about how to weld. When are we going to use this different type of welding stick or mm -hmm. welding method? So when we weld up aluminum, how are we doing that versus welding up carbon steel, TIG versus MIG welding. And, and, and I've done that with all, all kinds of different trades. I find it fascinating. So it does absolutely get very tedious to make the exact same camera video over and over again. Uh, when I made a whole boatload of Canon camera manuals last year, it was like 20 of them in the span of three days. I came away from it and said, I really, don't ever want to do that again because um, it have was you, literally all the can cannons have the exact same menu system but but someone's not going to be coming up to youtube and saying how do i use a canon camera they're going to say how right. do i use the canon xt or whatever and um 
and and so the the advantage of that even though that every video feels to me exactly the same when it's I a business it, you're putting out the kelly blue book you know or the exactly. like a, not kelly and, blue book i'm yeah. sorry the uh, haynes manual haynes manual or yeah exactly and and but the real benefit to the subscribers is that they can come away from it saying here is i i now understand my camera so i want mm -hmm. them to understand their specific camera interesting yeah. <laughs> Um, and you make other videos as well. Yeah. And, and the camera manuals, I'm getting to a point, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, where I've pretty much done what I can do with those. I have, I have about 250 cameras sitting on the shelf over here that, that are going to be the last of this, of the camera manuals that I do in the sense that I do them now. You're going to do gonna, another 250? Give or take, yeah. I've already bought the cameras. Why not? <laughs> That's and, uh, so, um, but then I'm going to do more lens reviews. I'm going to really double down on the film, the detailed film guides, the all about film series. Those are the, the videos people stay subscribed for. Uh, mm -hmm. th that is by far my most popular series. By and, the way, I'm, I, I can't wait for the Vivitar V4000 um, manual. Uh, <sighs> I, you looked over. You have one of these, don't you? I'm a 2500. I hate to disappoint. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. You got to make that same video twice. Uh, and, <laughs> and then the top shutter speed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and now the so, V4000 is basically the Phoenix P1. Yeah, okay. and uh, the uh, yeah, eight eight hundred other cameras. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just just out of curiosity, David, do you have a lot of different collections of things? I, I have over my life. Now it's cameras. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've sold basically. I've sold all the GI Joes, all the constructs, all my my childhood toys, uh, and now I just have the adult toys. <laughs> so, um, you but, heard uh, it here, folks. David Hancock, adult toy collector. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh crap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, okay. Uh, I lost my. Okay, so here I've got a question. Uh, I've got a question. So you're, I mean, you if you're working with all of these different cameras. Um, you talked about going to um, a pinhole camera to try to figure out what was going wrong with with the large format. Why pinhole? What was the advantage of going to pinhole? Why didn't you just stay with a lensed um, large format? Um, I, you know, I mean, I've got a great uh, place in my heart for pinholes. And, um, and I can, I, I can look and I've got about six of them sitting on my desk right now. What was it about the pinhole that was an advantage to you? What was it about the pinhole that you found interesting? And had you been shooting pinhole cameras before that? Yeah, so I, I had shot pinholes and I'd made them out of everything from like old aluminum film cassettes, uh, a monster mm -hmm. pop or energy drink can. I think I, yeah. one of my earliest videos was that. Um, I went to pinholes because they have one variable and it's, it's a fixed focal length, a fixed field of view. The only thing that I can mess up is the shutter speed. Uh, okay. and, and so if, if I calculate the shutter speed correctly, then I know everything else is correct and I'm, I'm on the right track to figuring it out. If I come back and it's way over or under, then, then I have done something wrong. And so that taught me the, the, basics of how does sheet film work and 
it turns out my friend Alice was right. It is just film. But um, uh, it, it stripped away the complexity of lens movements. And lens movements, so I'm working on an eight-part miniseries right now, and I'm, I'm about 20% about done drafting it, the ins and outs of, of large format lens movements. It's going to focus on things like the, the, the wedge of sharp focus and how that relates mm -hmm. to the hinge line and the way that the mechanics behind how movements front and back, axial or base tilt, affect where focus is and things like that. And so I was using these four by fives and I was not calculating properly the exposure with the reciprocity failure for nearer subjects, but I also wasn't calculating appropriately for light loss based on lens movements. And um, uh, also, yeah, I think the, the lens movement issue was really the big thing mm -hmm. with, with, with large format. When you get to a point where you're about 30 degrees off center axis, you've lost a stop of light. And uh, so that translates, and of course, starting out in four by five, oh look, this camera can bend like it's uh, like all, you know, like a accordion all over the place. I'm gonna make it do that, which is the big stupid mistake that everyone starts off. In no, you only make with. it do that to advertise it on eBay. That's the, that's the <laughs> way it should be done, yes. Yeah. It should yeah. only be for advertising, but um, but I was doing that, and so I, that was one of my big mistakes. But and I learned through the pinhole use that if I just kept things simple, then the results would be better. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, that that makes sense. Were you doing any um, front um, adjustments? Um, yeah, so one of the things that you know would be an issue there would be image circle. Yeah. And, um, so generally with a pinhole, you're going to have a much wider image circle to work with than a lensed uh, setup. And you're looking like you're thinking about whether that's true or not. I don't it, know. It, it is. It so yes and no, it is. Yeah. You With a pinhole, you have a larger total image circle than the majority of lenses. Okay. Um, now that that's not true with things like say the Schneider XL series, right? Like sure. the 72 millimeter, which covers five by seven, uh, uh, a 72 millimeter pinhole is not covering five by seven. Okay. Um, but with pinhole lenses, you have a smaller usable image circle, which is to say a smaller evenly illuminated image. Okay. So, so you're talking about fall off. Correct. Or correct. Okay. Fall off, gotcha. but also um, the point at which magnification mm -hmm. results in too great a level of distortion for the image to really be recognizable, because image distortion is just a function of magnification. Okay. And so, so I have the Ondu three four by five pinhole camera, and it's mm -hmm. you know it's like that thin, right? And then mine yeah. is about twice as thick, mm -hmm. and the difference in illumination and and with the Ondu, you get a center area that is well illuminated, and then the whole thing just dissol dissolves into darkness. Yeah. Whereas with mine, it's evenly illuminated corner to corner. So, okay. so it's a question of, of usable image circle versus, versus total image circle. Okay. When we get to that, I, I'd love to yeah. delve more into, um, into what your design decisions were uh on these but so you're working with with pinholes um pinhole cameras um are you at this point early on are you are you drilling those pinholes yourself 
or are you purchasing with the idea of, hey, I need something that is absolutely reliable in uh, its circular and its consistent size and stuff like that when yeah. you're doing your experiments? Yes, it's the latter because I wanted all of the experimental cameras to function or to tell me how the finals would function. So I didn't want to, the, the fewer the variables, it's the scientific method. My dad was mm -hmm. a scientist. The sure. fewer the variables that change, the more predictable and reliable the outcome. Uh -huh. So I found, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not. I found the guy who makes the pinholes for Harmon. Oh, and he's I know. Making, yeah, he's I making know. one for me. I've, okay, I've you know. bought his pinholes before. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. You, you can buy them on eBay, folks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. I didn't know. I didn't know if he wanted me telling people that. So. No. Um, yeah. Um. I. I've. I've shared that before. If you guys go okay. back to um, when I was talking, uh, I used his pinholes in the uh, twenty-four squared. So um, that was uh, it, and his pinholes are effing. Excellent. Amazing. If, Absolutely if you want amazing. Consistent pinholes. Um, I forget what his name and is, but I can. It, yeah. We, and they're, um, yeah. He, they're, they're accurate to within a half a millimeter. So, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, if I have two of my models that use 0 0.55 millimeter pinholes and mm -hmm. they are consistent, every single mm -hmm. one has been exactly the same. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I wanted them to be exceedingly precise. I, I think. It is a general practice when when building something, the fewer things that vary across across the design, the better the finished result's gonna be. Uh, yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of room for experimentation and, and randomness, and that can yield some really promising results and some fun experiments. But um, I, it, there's a difference in design philosophy between experimentation and predictability. Uh, I, I heard a speech or a, a talk given by one of the senior engineers at Ilford some years ago, and he was talking about the difference between experimental film, expired film, or things that have been treated with chemicals to create different colors and looks, versus somebody who's attracted to using Ilford film, which is to say if they started using HP5 Plus when it first came out and they're using it today, the results are going to be exactly the same, even though the chemical compounds and formulation within the emulsion is different today than it was back then because of environmental regulations and chemical availability today versus back then. Uh, and that's where he was talking about Ilford's R&D and the way that their budget goes into engineering their, their film stocks to continue performing the same way, even as chemicals are no longer able to be purchased in the UK. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and, and that's, I think, an important and a very hard discipline. It's an important discipline and hard discipline to, to make things perform consistently as we, we work to build them better. Okay, and we are back. Sorry, this roll too. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so okay. Uh, we're ostensibly gathered here today, dearly beloved, to uh, <laughs> hear about David's Kickstarter campaign. I first found out about it. David had sent me a message. Um, I had seen David's 
you know, videos over the years where we didn't know each other. And it, it said, hey, I'm launching this Kickstarter soon. Maybe I can talk to uh the podcast audience about it and i said okay but uh fair warning i have the exact same product <laughs> coming out soon um and david said cool <laughs> i'm gonna come on anyway more, and i said cool <laughs> yeah. so um i will i will present the rules you will come out of your corners fighting no <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no uh so about eight months ago i um I was just like, sometimes I sit around and make like a one day or two day project with my friend, Joe, uh, our friend Becky collects Leonardo cameras. This is, you know, it's a box. It's not, uh, it's not highly technical. Um, but you know, we made this about eight months ago and I was like, okay, Joe, I'm going to put it up, uh, for sale tonight. And then eight months passed and I got into other things and I never did it. And then I get this thing from David and I was like, okay, I wanted to release it, uh, when with these self-developing backs but i just released them because <laughs> i had to uh and then yeah. david made a bamboo version of much similar tell us about it yeah so um so i mean functionally a pinhole's a pinhole oh, but, right? wait, wait, wait. before but, yeah. before that uh you've been working on this for like seven years three uh three. i started I seven started versions in 2018 it's uh seven versions in one year this this right here is number nine um, this is the only of the, the, the pre-finals that I have left, but, but I actually just ordered, uh, last night, just ordered the finals, um, mm -hmm. that I'm going to use to make the instructional videos for these. But, but yeah, 10, 10 versions it took to get these to where I was, I was like, yes, this is something I'm comfortable enough with other people using. Yeah. The, the first version uh, was. By the way, I, I have to say, Ethan and I just had that same discussion because one of the cameras that I'm working on right now, I'm in version five. Yeah, we and, usually go to uh, about seven. <laughs> yeah, seven. Yeah, I and I still have a back to to redesign. So that it takes time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I think about some of the other Kickstarters. Like the other day, the um, or this morning, I saw on my newsfeed that uh, they finally announced that the Reflex interchangeable mount SLR is on hold, and <laughs> I, I think a lot of people. Uh, underestimate the difficulty with bringing yeah. a physical object to market yeah um so so yeah so i honestly if you starting this project that i thought oh, i'll have this thing hammered out and figured it would be six months and i just i just could not get it to a point where it was performing consistently so i had a lot of bugs to work out the first version was super janky uh, it looked like this on the sides but the front didn't have the teeth it was literally just a piece of wood that was glued on because I was having trouble visualizing how to make that work. Um, and then instead of having the exposure calculator on the back like this, the, the, um, the, back, the holders just went on the back and then I just rubber banded them on because I hadn't figured out how to make it stay on the, the camera. And, and I want to say for people who are listening at home, this is a camera that um, appears to be laser cut wood. Yes. So, and it has the, uh, I don't know, crenellations, I suppose. Uh, box joints. They're laser box cut box joints. joints. It's a really standard yeah. way of making yeah. anything, like you know, on a, <laughs> on a laser. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and, <clears throat> and I knew early on I wanted to use laser cutting instead of 3D printing because it's way more accurate. So this is accurate to within two-tenths of a millimeter, every mm -hmm. single one of them. And uh, 
that just means that everything's going to perform consistently and reliably. And the only reason it's that much of an inaccuracy, the CAD design is accurate to, to as near as perfect as it can be. But there's a two-tenths of a millimeter curve on the laser. So, well, but uh, I mean, the, the curve doesn't, you can, the, it's you can design not, it out. yeah, exactly. It's, it's not the curve. It's actually the wiggle of the, the laser, yeah. you know, the wiggle of the beam, the, uh, alignment of your mirrors, uh, the bumps in your tracks. But, you know, I mean, yes, lasers make things fast, mm -hmm. relatively cheap compared to 3d printing and, uh, you know, repeatable in large numbers without a large yeah. number of machines. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're amazing. In fact, um, if, if the campaign succeeds, the proceeds are going to go to buying me a laser cutter so that I can make 120 cameras. Mm -hmm. That's really, I, I think, where people are going to be most interested. Yeah, I think your designs would go from three years to a couple of weeks if you had a laser cutter. Like, you know, this yeah. took me three versions over the course of three half days because I could just press cut and... Yep. See, all right. Uh, I, th I think there's no amount of um, designing in CAD or on paper that can get you away from having to make the damn thing and look at it. You're probably looking at a couple of weeks you know, for yep. parts to come in. Yeah, it's it's three weeks usually from from order to arrival. Then I've got to order them or put them together, figure out what design element I put in the wrong place, and re reorder that part. Yeah. That happened a number of times. Oh um, yeah. Try yeah. try that with circuit boards, but we should. Oh, if no it's thanks. three weeks, David, we should we should talk about some laser cutting things after the show. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, well, it's and yeah, it, I, I'm using a, a company that's pretty pretty busy. So, but um, at any rate, uh, I got off track. But oh yeah, pinholes are pinholes. So yeah. So if you have a, a half millimeter pinhole, it's going to perform the same, whether it's. 10 millimeters from the film plane or 100 millimeters from the film plane, no matter what's holding it. The, the difference is actually going to be in the camera itself and how that camera is built. So for me, the, the biggest thing that I did with these, and it's going to be impossible to see in here, I, I, I know, uh, was I lined these with felt. And for, for everyone <laughs> at home, I've got the inside of the camera here with a flashlight pointing into it. Mm -hmm. And Basically, I created the felt so it's not just the um, shape of the wood, but there's an overhang on three of the sides. And then when it's put together, those overhangs end up overlapping. So if you can see at the corner there, I'm trying to angle it so you can see it. That's how you light seal the box joints. Correct. The box is light sealed. So, so the worst offender I had had a two millimeter gap along the entire front of the camera uh, from wood warping. And it was still light proof. I, I took a bunch of the eight, there was an eight by 10 and a bunch of the sample images, all the sample images in the campaign are from that camera. And so this, this felt material that I use, it, it's doubled on every seam and four layers thick on every corner because the corners mm -hmm. are the most likely places to get a pinhole. Mm -hmm. And that approach really made them completely light proof. I'd had some issues early on when I wasn't doing that. I have uh, I I know exactly what it is, which is that you can't cut the the box joints in a way such that they fit one hundred percent perfect because then they wouldn't fit, right? And Correct. and light has a much smaller tolerance than um, wood fitting. Um, the way I do it is I have let's see if we can. See. Um, I do have a lot of uh, bring, bring yourself up. Yeah, um, yeah, I will. I will. I'm just yeah. moving my lights here. 
Um, four. Oops. No. Hold on. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to do the closing roll. Yeah. Oh, now we've yeah. lost. Here we go. Uh, angel and Devil. So on the inside of yeah. these guys, I always have like on the front, there's a frame. On the rear, there's a frame. And then mm-hmm. on the sides, they're just these sticks you glue in the corner. And then actually, I found one makes it much sturdier, right? Like, the, you, I mean, I'm sure yours are also like you could kick them down a flight of stairs and they'd be fine. You were or using throw, really thick bamboo, I noticed. Throw them at a bull elk and run. Right. But, but, um, you know, the, those sticks eliminate the need for, I mean, there's just no light in there. Uh, so you don't need, um, belt. It's, That's it's sort of just idea. cheaper and easier. I, I, I yeah. I now uh, I'm I'm gonna say um, what I've used in the past um, is is just um, wood putty and big mm-hmm. thick you know wood putty. The problem is not always so great. And then I've also used um, uh, black silicone, and uh, both of those are good. But black silicone will get every wire well so i have i have like a design philosophy like we we've actually talked about this on the podcast a couple of times is uh baffles over seals um where if i absolutely have to right and maybe on this 20 by 24 i will have to use some foam but uh having been a buyer and seller of cameras for a decade and that meant often paying somebody or doing it myself to pick out gummy old seals from things or refelt or fabric. Like I always try and make like, like on the, um, the Bronco pan, the back door, right? It could have foam seals, but instead, uh, it's just got a baffle, right? Because like, can't make a U trap bend just, just like your toilet. Right. And so that everything that I build, um, if it's laser cut or two 3D printed pieces coming together, I always make all the joints into a baffle, right? And that's that's basically what this is with the sticks in the corners. But uh, that becomes like really important on an eight by ten self-developing back because you can't put like adhesives that will peel off of um, peel off of acrylic or, or smooth plastics to get you know. There's just it it won't work, and and so. You know, one, you have to make them fit perfectly in a box joint, but two, then they have to be watertight and light tight. And so um, I, I'm always uh, really worried about, you know, ha- <laughs> how does everything fit? How does that have a baffle on it? Uh, I'll show you guys later after the podcast what I was working on yesterday. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think felt is uh, it just kills all light. It's great. It, it, it does. And, and so... Also, when the light cone extends beyond the area of the film plane, which it does, instead of bouncing off of like black paint or black tape or whatever, because the felt is textured, it's just like having an infinite number of microscopic baffles inside the camera. Yeah. It just absorbs everything. Um, I, I found using these with the felt, when I, when I switched over to that, I was using photo paper and Ilford Multigrade 4, which is a really good and an expensive one. It is, it becomes like a, a two-tone like a litho paper just black and white there is no that's it just contrast um was was not not pleasing with that but with normal films they ended up 
performing really well. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So, okay. So, um, you're, you're making these and, um, you, uh, they're bamboo. You're they are. There's bamboo. Okay. There's seven millimeter bamboo. It's uh, like bamboo ply or composite, right? Uh, yeah. So it's three, three plies, thick bamboo plywood. And okay. my understanding is that the bamboo is grown in the U S and then the plywood is also manufactured here in the U S. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. The supplier for this is FSC certified. Okay. So, uh, it's also sustainably grown and, 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 and everything. So, that was, and that's a big part of the cost driver is because it's a U.S. material. Mm -hmm. It's not cheap. Right. Um, so I mean, I, I'm going to push back on that for a minute. Um, pretty much almost all woods that you would buy in Home Depot or Lowe's are also um, made in the U.S. I, I, I'm, bamboo ply is extremely strong, light, and dimensionally stable, and it is an expensive material. But it's not because it's made in the U.S. Uh, all, all wood you get pretty much made in the u.s and most of it is fsc as well just from the economics of you know trucking lumber across an ocean and mm -hmm. trucks don't float yeah. yeah i was about to say <laughs> they, they built the bridge from here to china yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. we're getting there yeah no, that's that's a, that's a fair point that is that is a, a very fair point um but uh but yeah the the bamboo is you're right super super light so mm -hmm. that it was it worked out really well for that Mm -hmm. And uh, and one of the things about bamboo is, with the rate it grows, it is uh, pretty sustainable until we start making everything out of bamboo. In which point, it will no longer be sustainable. But well, I mean, uh, it grows now, like a it, weed. It's great, and, yeah. and you know, like bamboo as it as it grows is almost yeah. useless uh, in camera building, right? Because it's you know all of these rings, but then they make multi ply yeah. out of it, and it is insanely strong for its weight mm -hmm. it's, it's yep. pretty cool yep so yeah it's it's good stuff it's it's worked i had one of the eight by tens fell off the side of a mountain and did not break uh -huh. <laughs> um so i was able to go down and, and pick that up and then i had one of the four by fives i fell down the stairs and landed on it and um which hurt like the dickens <laughs> i'm not gonna lie uh but two parts of it popped off and i would just glued them back up and it and used it later that day so all right yeah uh sorry to hear about the fall but um mm -hmm. by the way i recommend pillows pillows <laughs> yeah a little bit easier to fall on too yeah but it, you know but these kinds of um uh what am i trying to say these kinds of tests that we don't plan are very important because natural experiments yeah exactly Exactly. <laughs> a minute ago was the control when I was not falling on my camera. Now yeah. is the experiment. <laughs> it, it replaces having a budget for destructive testing. There we go. Mm -hmm. There. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, you let's talk a little bit about the design aspect, not necessarily the structure, but your but, choice of but, focal length. Can we? Your, can we also talk about the process a little bit? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, actually, I, I suppose that that's you know part of the deal. How did you you uh, um, these are a very specific focal length. We talked about the uh, we talked about um, you know image circle. Um, uh, there are calculators on for uh, pinhole size versus uh, diagonal 
you know, image circle that you want and all that type of stuff. So I want to hear about how you got to that aspect of your, um, let, let's start with the four by five. You have a four yeah. by five, five by seven and eight by 10. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So, so they all had the same mission, which was to be maximally usable by as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately guided every single design decision that I made. And I knew early on, I wanted them to be build at home kits because I wanted people to say, Hey, here is not only this thing I use, but that I made it. They could, mm -hmm. you know, um, if they wanted to stain it, polyurethane it, paint it, whatever they could do that as well. But I wanted it to be something that from the get go, people could say, this is my camera from day one. Mm -hmm. And, um, so when, when people get it, the only thing that are, things that are going to be pre-installed are going to be the uh, actual pinhole because that needs a different kind of glue. So I'm going to install that. And then I'm also going to install the bubble levels into them as okay. well um, because those that'll just simplify things for people. Yeah. So um, at any rate, so, so everything stemmed from that. And then the first thing I did for these was I, I looked up the pinhole calculation and then I manually by hand, I'm not a math guy. So I taught myself enough math to do the pinhole calculations for the three standard formats. Okay. Uh, at that point, four by, for the four by 10 was a distant dream, was not a glimmer in my, in my eye, as my grandma used to say. And um, so, uh, so I, I hand calculated them and then verified them with online calculators. And I was off by a couple millimeters here and there. But okay. it was pretty close. But Wait, I wanted a couple, to... of, couple of millimeters in a pinhole is a lot. Is a lot. Uh, it is. Are you just well in focal length or in, in focal in, length? In yeah, focal he's not length. talking Sorry. about aperture. Okay. No, I I, yeah. I was able to figure I'm out the, the exact pinhole diameter, but the focal length I got a little bit off. Okay. But but it was important to me to try to do it myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the empirical um, uh, testing in this type of thing is very important okay yes. so i want to know this um i often also start with a little bit of math um the next place i always move is uh the the pencil uh before cad uh, how about you where where'd you go after math were, were you straight to cardboard boxes scissors uh crazy glue duct tape or or I, were you yeah pencil and graph paper actually not not here but on my when i'm when i I'm on lunch if I'm not out walking with Stein. I take Stein back to the office. And if I'm not out on a walk with him, then I'm at home, I'm at the office on my lunch break, either working on YouTube scripts or working on design iterations for, for the cameras. So I always start off with pencil and, and graph paper. In fact, one of the design ideas I've been working on is a, a gear-based exposure calculator for the, the Model 2 cameras. So that mm -hmm. instead of just having the Sunny 16 calculator on the back, someone can rotate a dial and that will move a couple of pinions to rack and pinion system and those pinions will indicate the iso and the exposure time have you seen a lot of the old exposure slide rules or rotating I, slide rules i have not oh this is a huge thing and was like so for every engineering profession uh, and many graphic artist professions they had different slide rules so like a standard slide rule would help you calculate uh, logarithms, multiplication, things like that. But um, they had, you know, astronomical and uh, nautical slide rules. And they also had exposure calculator slide rules, which are doing, usually it's not um, either they're uh, rotating disks or sliding things, not uh, rotating and sliding uh, rack and pinion systems, but 
after the podcast, let's uh, do a little Google and um, there's, there's some real fun ones out there. I have also a PCB slide rule project going, but it's not a photographic one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that would be, yeah, that'll, that'll be fun. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, train of thought. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So, oh, so pencil and graph paper next. And then once I have something, then, then I'll, on the, the graph paper, I note out what I'm thinking as I'm drawing it. And then I take it into CAD. Uh, and because in CAD, then it's really easy to manipulate shapes. I can I can put all the pieces together and make sure that all of the the the, the, the groove joints are lining up properly, and um, and that does a lot with not having to reorder parts that I've accidentally built incorrectly. Mm -hmm. So, um, what, what's your turnaround on uh, on ordering a a version? You know, you order a version and then you have a a turnaround of a certain amount of time. And if it didn't come out right, you have to, um, you know, reorder that part. Yeah. Um, for a little while, I was using a makerspace here with a laser. So the turnaround on that was just however often I could get up there. But when I order them online, it's usually about, so, so as we're recording this last night, I ordered the final production pre-production units for the campaign and, those are the ones I'm going to use to make the how to assemble these videos and then the, the videos that will explain how to use the cameras. And uh, those will arrive on September 10th. So that's what, that's three weeks roughly every time I make an order. Um, uh, that's it, brutal. <laughs> it is. It's a lot of waiting. But the advantage to that is I have a lot of time. When, when I was in grad school and, and undergrad getting my degrees in writing, the teachers always said you you write something and then you set it aside for two weeks and then you come back to it and it's a rule that I have also for photographs sometimes I sit on things for a year and a half but um, that gives you the ability to separate from them so you have a fresh perspective when you revisit them so when the pieces come in now all of the things I was thinking and intending those are out of my brain and I can look at what is actually in front of me oh. and and it's it's yeah uh, in in that meantime process, are you working on other things? I mean, obviously you have a life. You've got like five side gigs. You, you you're doing other things, but are you working on anything sort of camera or or that sort of discipline related? And are you keeping a notebook or journal or lab book um, around that process? Everything is up here. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I I basically. Uh, it, one of my old bosses um, commented once that I had the best memory of anyone he'd ever met because I could remember numbers like dollar figures down to the penny from seven years previous. It's like, how much did we bid on this job? Oh, we bid this amount down to this penny and here's all the logic behind how we came up with that number. Uh, and, and he's like, we don't have the file open. I'm like, I know. Um, I just had it memorized. So, so all of it's up rattling around up here, but when these, when the, during the production period, when I don't have them, I'll work on other stuff. So the big thing that I do is I'll sit down and I'll start writing camera manual scripts because it's a very repetitive process. And uh, it's, it's always fun to read about the cameras, uh, but it, because it's re repetitive, it helps clear my mind of all of the, uh, the, the new creative content that I'm trying to work on. And then the end result is I have a boatload of camera manu manual scripts written. 
so that when I have a free evening, I just turn the chair around to the studio and can hammer out a bunch of uh, different camera videos. Or uh, right now, what I'm working on is I'm finalizing the All About Film videos for ADOC CMS22, TMAX100, Cinestill 800, and Delta 100. Those are and good ones. Yes, this I'm hoping to get those and um, Kentmere 400 out this year, and possibly also Delta 3200. But um, like, but what I'll basically this is a similar process to building these the cameras. It's a, it's all of an assembly line. I get everything organized, and and the organization is what makes everything flow smoothly. So uh, one of my subscribers on on there's a Petapixel article about the, the campaign, and one of my subscribers left a comment saying that um, I do the work of three people, basically, that I'm just hammering out tons of different content. And the reason I'm able to is because of all of the early stage organization. So when I design By the a time camera... people know about it, you're three years in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, and so, the, so organizing a camera build is... A, basically the same thought process as organizing a YouTube video. The all about film ones are very hard. They take a year and a half to three and a half or five years to make, to capture all the photos because they have 100 to 200 photos in them that I've taken. And to, to have 100 to 200 photos that are worth sharing and that show what the film can do with 16 to 25 different developer and chemistry combinations just takes time. So I organize all the stuff on my computer and then I, I have notes that I put together at the end. And basically the way that I put those together is if I can look at the video and materials and know what I'm thinking, then I have a pretty good bet that someone watching the video from scratch will as well. And that's the same theory I have with the camera builds. When the parts come in, I want to be the person going into dealing with the camera from scratch. But I still have the notes of what I was thinking of in my head. So, so if, if I can get everything to work correctly, then, then I know I'm on the right track. And, and if you want, I'm also happy to talk about the process of building a, a YouTube video, if, if you guys want to touch on that. Interesting. Yeah, you know, so I think I'm very, very comfortable with the process of cameras. I make a lot of YouTube videos, which I'm very uncomfortable with the process. And I feel like, um, you know, designing cameras is... Uh, what I do, right? But but YouTube is not what I consider what I do, although I do it. And I go in blind. You know, there's there's definitely two millimeter cracks in my first attempts at all my YouTube videos. And almost everything <laughs> that I've made <clears throat> has been me recording something, having, you know, 30 minutes of me yelling at the screen like Chad or like, what's up, guys? You know, and then just like taking jump cuts of that and putting them together until I have like, I don't know, seven jump cuts a second to ha get myself to say what it is. And then I have to like re-record that. Um, it is, it is also like this iterative process, but YouTube seems extremely hard. There's so many things you could do. That's just bad yeah. physics. <laughs> yeah. And creativity. Like what, what do you want to create? And, and that's the hardest part for me is, is reining myself in when I want to make something. So, um, so I have a few different models that I follow with my YouTube videos. With the camera manuals, I have a word outline, and it follows the same outline. And because every, all the content is basically the same, I have generally a wrap down for each point in that, 
those outlines for what I want to say. So those are really easy. I almost don't edit those. Um, this is editing... professional writer scripting a exactly. YouTube video. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I might edit out a couple of coughs or something like that. But generally speaking, I don't. It's about one in ten videos where I You're have not to trying to figure out the meaning in the editing <laughs> you Correct. before you recorded, like Correct. I should, but do not. <laughs> then, then the other way that I do it is with the camera reviews, which are voiceovers, my hike logs, which are voiceovers, and the all about film videos. I'll write out the script ahead of time. All about film, the script is an outline, but the other ones are actually narrative paragraph scripts, and. Uh, I have a mic over here that I'll just connect to a preamp and then a recorder and I just talk right into it and I'll pull that up in Audacity and then edit out the coughs. But because the script is pre-written, because I've read it out loud two or three times before I record, I'm usually not making a whole lot of cuts in the audio file as well. So then it just becomes a matter of syncing up the video and the audio. The, the best thing that any YouTube creator can do is do all of the pre-organization to set themselves up in post to have the minimum amount of work possible. It's sort of like the old advice of do all, do all of your image in camera. If you don't have to go to the dark room and do a whole lot of extra work on the print or in post and digital, if you do it correctly in camera, you're going to save yourself a ton of time later. And that's, that's the philosophy I use behind the, the videos. Also, why a lot of them end up looking very similar. So, uh, I look at some of the other photography YouTubers like Steve O'Neill's. I was watching his his most recent video last night, and um, just thinking about like how much different they are from mine. Whereas I'm aware that mine, it's me talking the, almost the whole time, and his has these moments where he'll just take take footage in a field, and it's just the sound of the field, or some some quiet music in the background. And I was sitting there last night watching that and thinking, I really appreciate that style and probably need to teach myself to shut up in my videos. I, I sometimes think it's like fun to try and shoot like just still photos, shoot like somebody you admire for a day, even very uh, different. I think it's, it's worth a <clears throat> worth a try trying these Steve onions video. Uh, style once or twice and see what's yeah but you know you should not take youtube advice from me that's <laughs> all right and uh, um I, I i'm happy to get advice from anyone whether they mean it well or not um, <laughs> i love these trolls <laughs> <laughs> the trolls make me so much better <laughs> oh, man. Uh, no but um at, at any rate so then then a big part of that is then how the files are structured on my computer. So I set up a folder system and all of my all about film videos have the exact same folder structure. Well, basically the black and whites have a set folder structure and the colors have a modestly different one because you the folder structure- You also have like uh, many spreadsheets referring to these and cross-referencing, I suppose. Mm. Just all in here. <laughs> Here, and then I have one notepad file where I keep track of which of the film videos I'm going to do next. So I have 2022 and 2023 sketched out for the All About Film series already. And, um, and so what I do is I'll then I'll use, instead of a spreadsheet, then I use the folder structure to keep track of what's going on and where I am. 
So if, when I open up an all about film video folder, the, the root folder is Ilford Delta 100. And then there's a video that's a folder that says photos, parentheses, and right now it says 158 or something like that. Uh -huh. And that number in parentheses is the total number of photos. Go into that folder and now there are all of these subfolders for all of the different developers and concentrations. Oh so D76 plus one and plus three are separate folders, parentheses, the number of photos in that folder. Hey, David, Go back into, in the day, were, were yeah. you a reader of Pop Photo? No, never heard uh, of it. Uh, popular photography. Oh, Pop. Okay, yeah, that. I, yes, I did used to read that. So back, I think it was every like September or November was like the film issue, and they did this right. But they probably had a hundred interns, you know, shooting and developing the same picture uh, in every different. Uh, mm -hmm chemistry and time combo and they would produce like these giant like the the whole issue was just a chart <laughs> yeah yeah that that uh i wish i had that manpower to help me out <laughs> i'd, yeah. I'd, I'd punch out one of these videos a week. and insane that you are trying to you know, sort of get that <laughs> that breadth on that many yeah it it's fun and and um and that also is, is how it is that I, when I release one of these videos, I'll do a community post on my community tab saying, here's how many developers I used, and here's how many cameras I used in all of these different formats. So I can keep track of the formats and things like that. And yeah, one of my subscribers left a comment on one of the early All About Films saying, hey, these are great, but I don't know which photo came from which format. And so then now, in addition to just showing the photos, I now also have to overlay, I don't have to, but I choose to overlay all of the formats that I use for each of the, for each photo so that people can see how it performs in different formats as well. <laughs> it's, it is so much work to make one of those videos, but yeah. um, they help people and that's the important part. <laughs> cool. um, I wanna uh, head back to uh, the development um, and it, it, the like the focal length that you're that that you um, uh, came to uh, came up with for each one of your uh, your cameras. I'm not asking you to yeah. tell us um, what exactly that was was like. What, uh, what is the optimization problem, right? Which, which yeah. is probably going to be like image illumination yeah, so, versus angle of view. Yeah. Correct. And so, so actually every camera has oh, the specs hang, on the side of it. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on one second. Here's what I want to ask yeah. is what were you looking for? Were you looking for the ultimately sharp image or were you looking for a normal field of view or were you looking for uh, zero light fall off? What was the optim what was it that you were working towards? So every one of these is designed for to balance sharpness with even illumination. Okay. Uh, and that was a big thing. I wanted to use, when, when I, I told um, my, my photo lab, they developed a bunch of the Portra 160 shots it took on four by five. And I was talking on, uh, over email to Laz, the lab manager, and uh, I said, yeah, I took these on a pinhole camera I built. And he didn't believe me at first mm -hmm. uh, because the illumination is so even from, end, from corner to corner. And they're re relatively sharp. And Andrew, uh, Andrew of Andrew and Danae did a video with that four by five as well. And his, his examples show a similar thing, which is that the illumination is even. Um, and, then, and then the sharpness, coincidentally with all four of the models, 
the optimum sharpness, the focal length for the optimum sharpness also provided very even illumination. So I didn't have to do too much juggling between those mm -hmm. two. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you, uh, so it, how, how many iterations were you working through to get to that point uh, versus um, iterations to make sure that the mechanics of it um, uh, so, okay, so let's, uh, let me ask it this way. How long before you started your production uh, run, and not production run, but the run up to production, let's say? So, that. yeah, so the first generation of each of the cameras mm -hmm. had the same focal length as the final. And uh, that flowed okay. out from doing the math up front. So I okay. went into the design knowing exactly how long the focal length needed to be to achieve the goals that I wanted. And then the first generation just proved that I had done the math correctly. Okay. Um, and and the, first, the photos from the first generation camera that, that I took are just as sharp and evenly illuminated as the final cameras. So, okay. So realistically, the, the generations just became iterations of the... Um, the way that the cameras fit together and how easily they were built. The, the most significant change in the later generations was the design of the film back and the design of the shutter, just to make both of those easier and more reliable. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, why, don't, why don't you go, we're, we're looking at, uh, we, it's four different cameras on your Kickstarter, yes, right? correct. So four by five, five by seven, four by 10, and eight by 10. Correct. Correct. Uh, yes. And the four by 10 can also shoot two four by five film film backs, not yeah. at the same time, but either or. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, so like, yeah, why don't, uh, why don't you go through features? Why don't you yeah. talk about like uh, the, the design of the shutter, which is one that is similar to, but I think it's significantly different from most other um commercially available pinhole shutter systems yes. yeah so yeah. my my up until version nine this is the a version nine four by five i use this bamboo shutter and it was perfect for the longest time but for some something in the texture of the bamboo changed and this this sucker this shutter is super sticky and i've never been able to, to get it to a point where it moves smoothly like okay. all of the previous generations and let me describe for people who are listening that is a shutter that's simply a slide it has yes. an opening and it has a closing a closed side and you just slide it from one to the other in uh in, in this case uh in portrait mode it, it runs along the longer end of the camera. So in portrait mode, it would be up and down. In landscape mode, it would be side to side. Could. On the larger formats than four by five, they're big enough that this could be oriented either direction. And that was a okay. big thing. I wanted this to be orientable in either direction so people could place it however they were comfortable, left or right handed. Okay. So as you build it, you can make that decision. The old design, correct. The new designs okay. only go together one way. Okay. So, um, but. But this was, and, and this worked out really well for the longest time, but just, I couldn't, I gave up on this because of the, the issues with the friction here. Yeah. So, so yeah. One of, the, one of the things about shooting pinhole is that you want two things out of the shutter. And that is you want a smooth movement while opening it so you do not get camera shake. And the other thing is it's got to stay shut when it's shut. 
So, um, uh, so I Although understand. Although it's less important on a on a large format one, right? Because you know you're not like you're not going to walk around with this with the the dark slide out with the film holder and just like hoping that the shutter. Oh know, yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. So on, on a camera like David's or, or mine, like you kind of just want like a very easy thing that won't. Yeah, there's for... there. Yeah, you you do have the added advantage on a large format of the dark slide. So you're not going to accidentally if it opens in the bag, it's not going to be a problem. So yeah, you got to have yeah. some locking on all of the uh, roll film pinholes that you build. Right, right, exactly. Yes. And and so the final cameras have this shutter, which replaces the bamboo slide with a rotating aluminum plate. And okay. there's one other thing I would say is important in a shutter, which if you're taking the long exposure, is that once it moves up into place smoothly, it can stay there without me having to hold the shutter in yeah. place. And then yeah. when I, I come back, I can just flip it back and the, the exposure is done. And I, and okay. I assume you're um, letting the user like uh, tension those three around the thing to get an optimal amount of friction on correct if i just turn this about a tenth of a turn now it's a whole lot looser yeah um so if i if i take it out too far that it's not this one's not going to cooperate it's not going to get too loose to to stay up uh, -huh. uh but the, another advantage of the felt lining in back is that when the nut gets tightened down on the front here it creates it compresses the felt and so the felt holds the nut in place, meaning that the only thing that's needed to adjust the tension is access to this front screw. Oh. And so the, the user doesn't have to take the back off in order to, to adjust the tension. Interesting. I okay. made a very cool. different decision. <laughs> yeah. Which is that I use a nylock nut. Um, you, can, you know what a nylock is? It's got the nylon uh, yeah, exactly. ring inside of it. So yeah. it won't walk. Right, which means yeah. that you set the tension, it's always going to hold that tension. That being said, in 10 years, you know, these surfaces are going to wear down, it's going to get loose, and then yeah. you will need a pliers uh, or or something, a wrench, something to hold yeah. the nylock nut in place while you change this. So my, yeah. my decision was, um, you know, sort of like a slightly longer lasting calibration there, but like, yeah. Yeah. it's also going to require a tool if, <laughs> if it ever... Yeah. And I gave that I, I gave that a post thought. I, I looked at nylon nuts. Um, ultimately, I, I went with with this approach because I figured the aluminum is going to wear against the bamboo more quickly than like materials wear against each other. And mm -hmm. so there's probably going to be a more frequent need over the first year to just make a slight tenth of a tenth of a turn adjustment every few months. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. But, and then if you had the nylon nut, of course, because you couldn't adjust that so easily. Then you would it would just wear out the a bamboo a little bit more quickly. Yeah. So, um, and of course, uh, I just want to. Uh, you can see pictures of all of these if you're listening. Uh, in the show notes, there will be a link to the Kickstarter. Um, at this point, the Kickstarter has about four or five days left. So, if you there. are at all interested, uh, now's the time to jump. So, so yeah. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's talk a, a little bit more. Tell us about the design. Uh, tell us about yeah. more of the design decisions. So, so everything is designed to be maximally accessible. So the this is the four by ten, right? And the text here, try and get it on camera. There you go. Is very dark. It's very easy to read. The, the font on this model is something like uh, thirty six point. So it's it's a very large print. Then. 
On the backs of each camera, there's an exposure guide for Sunny 16 so that if someone's out in full sun, they know their ISO and the shutter speed that they're using. All right, hold, hold it a little uh, to your, yeah, that way. Great. So, um, a little bit. yep. <laughs> now move your head to the left. There Stand we go. On one leg. Okay, great. And so you can see the exposure calculator goes from one ISO, which is like liquid light or uh, like a uh, bromide photo paper, like a FOMA 332, which is an awesome paper that was discontinued, to two ISO, which is J-Lane standard plates, and then up to as fast as 800 ISO. I used to go up to 3200 ISO on these, but I thought, I mean, like no Four one's pictures. actually doing a 120th of a second exposure. Yeah, and if you're shooting 3200, what are you doing with a pinhole? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you yeah. know, so, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so they're really designed for lo slightly longer exposures, but then right here, somebody doesn't need to carry a light meter with them or a light meter app if they're out in full sun. Then on, e th this is for the side, you can see the sighting lines. Uh, I like that you did the sighting lines like that. Yes. That is my preference. Almost everybody else that I know is pinhole or prefers them in reverse. And so uh, the first gen didn't have sighting lines, but like, my setting lines go both ways <laughs> because yeah. I couldn't convince people. <laughs> I don't, that, you know, that is definitely my preference the way you've got it. Yeah. yeah I, I just want somebody to, to be able to put their eye up behind uh, it and just move their head. And so the final cameras, um, I, I redid some geometry on the, the cameras last night to make them a little bit cheaper to cut. So I'm going to put bubble levels in all of the cameras now. Mm -hmm. And this, and when they're level, the bubble will take the place of this point. So the bubble levels are going to go right here, Very and then clever. it's going to be bubble out to point. And that also reduced the cost a little bit by cutting out some of the uh, engraving, which is a very spendy design element. I, um, yeah. Uh, we, we should talk about cheaper ways to engrave. I do a lot of wholesale cutting, and uh, it looks like you've got some raster engraving, but like... So I know, looking at your thing, besides, I, I actually really love the look of these boxes. Uh, I think the exposure calculator is like a, a heinous crime on the back of it. But beyond that, from a manufacturing standpoint, I think it is uh, like probably as expensive to raster that data onto your camera as it is to cut a lot of the parts. It's all actually it's all vector. Oh, okay. So, okay. so you know every everything in here is is uploaded as an EPS to the uh, manufacturer. No, no, no. Okay, but the the okay. The, oh, I see what you're saying. When because it the is file actually is vector, correct. but that is, is a raster yes. engraving. Whereas I, uh, you know, so my cameras would be as expensive as yours if I rastered these lines. But I, in fact, uh, cut cut those lines less deeply, and so you can get some thinner lines, and you can get them pretty dark. Yeah. Um, but I mean the, the cost of, of the markings on that camera some very beautiful uh, it's got to be crazy <laughs> it is this this camera if I were to produce it with no markings would be $85 less yep. Yep. so um, but but uh, yeah so so then the uh, the side here this is the the other sighting line and then all of the cameras on the bottom where the tripod socket mm -hmm. goes also have sighting lines so that people can put them up above their heads. Version one, no sight lines. Version two, sight lines on three sides. Yes. Version, the one that I released, just put them everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. everywhere. If, I, if I didn't have all the data on this side, I would 
I would put the sighting lines in there. One thing I had thought about and just could never do in a way that I liked the look of was actually building the sighting lines into the finger joints. So that instead of following sighting lines, there would be set finger joints somewhere on the, like a marking here, and then yeah. certain finger joints up here that would represent where people look. Yeah, you know, so I think that's clever. Um, I don't know if you can see, um, let's see if I can make myself big here. Uh, hold on. Why don't I have the right? Okay, so I just used um, these protrusions from the finger joints in the back plane, and those are what hold the elastics on. Yeah back but i i think likewise uh joe and i have talked about i mean this is the tripod screw but you know there you could just as easily pick a thing up here or you know you could put a small finger joint in the spot which i had not thought mm -hmm. about but we we've, we've okay. talked about even like one here and one here and just site. i eventually just went for like as clean and indestructible as possible um I, I think there's uh, some interesting things one figure out interdigitating those finger joints. Yeah, a lot a lot of usability problems can be solved with clever design. Um, and then I think that's that's really the majority of it. With and then I have the four by ten here. I'll show you the uh, inside of it real quickly. Oh, this is a cool latching system. Uh, so this latching system is unique to this model of the camera because it can shoot either a single 4x10 image, so that's the 4x10 opening, uh -huh. or uh, I don't have any 4x5 film backs at hand. Oh, here, here you go. <laughs> but, oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you put two 4x5 film backs in, in this, in this shape, and then mount them in the camera, that's you get diptychs. And then... Yeah then these spacers hold the four by five so that there's no light leaks and they're centered yeah. in the four by 10 opening. Okay, so uh, we were talking before, I have, I have a four by 10 pinhole camera as well for two, um, uh, two four by five. And the biggest problem is this separation bar in the center takes too much of that image out. He has solved it um by making the back uh light tight oh, for that but, joint okay i i yes. gotta i gotta ask ethan's ethan's got it he knows exactly what's going to happen so the what? problem is even though uh david has come up with like a really good way to light seal that you still yeah. have uh, mm -hmm. put myself up here uh, why don't i have yeah. the right hot key for me okay here we go yeah uh you still you're have not the hot bottom enough. of Correct. you know these these pieces of film yeah. can't come within you know this what is it uh 12 or 13 millimeters of the bottom yeah. here you lose here. about an inch in the middle yeah, yeah. no but the difference is with mine you still have that space plus you have a bar and yeah. so that took a lot out of it and i've i've really only shot that camera once and so the, the idea so. isn't to take the two four by fives and have the negatives marry up perfectly to create a perfect seamless image not a panorama it, it's a diptych. correct it's intentionally designed to be a diptych camera where that space between the two four by five negatives becomes an artistic part of the image composition yeah one of the things that i uh, you're talking about how you would shoot that is one of the things that i did a lot was while making sure that there was something that was continuous between both sides 
I would have something close in one side, something far in the other, and that continuous element would, would bring it across. At least that's my brain when I was thinking about shooting it. And, and I, I think that there's something really fun and interesting about that approach. Um, okay. it, 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 and shooting that does save you the $150 film holder or $180 film holder. So. Graham, I'm very surprised yeah. that you did not bring this up, which is that um, we're both real into stereo pictures. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a single lens, right? That that uh, yeah. left and right side. Why don't uh, you have a pin, three yeah, pinhole? Yeah. Because, because people have drills, Graham. Well, because <laughs> because Dominic did that with his Minuta stereo earlier this year. Uh, I have my Minuta stereo that Dominic sent me to test uh, when we, when the campaign was going on in the other room, but uh, he does he does that already, and uh -huh. I, I just I didn't feel that there was an advantage to me doing that as well. Plus, it increased the complexity of the design and the Plus assembly. People got drill bits. Yeah, right. Somebody I mean, wants to like modify. I they can. Yeah, I'm not saying they should all go out and drill your beautiful bamboo cameras. However, yeah. I mean I think. Yeah. Some people are go. I mean, it's inevitable, right? I sell cameras too. People are mm -hmm. going to make weird, fantastical, and sometimes terrible mm -hmm. things out of your creations. That's okay. Yeah. I want people to have it be their camera, not mine. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Uh, hey, that asked me, uh, or that gets me to one question: the uh, the bamboo that you're sending out is unfinished bamboo, right? Correct. So you yes. can finish this how you want. Correct. Um, I think for me, I think the best finishing is just a few layers of a matte polyurethane. I think that looks striking. Okay. But okay. Um, I actually haven't finished any of them in a number of generations because I've also found that the weather of being out hiking with these and then it starts raining or they fall in the dirt or whatever uh -huh. gives it, the cameras a really nice character all their own. Okay. So, yes. But if, yes. But if somebody wanted to paint them or put stickers uh -huh. on them or whatever, they, yeah. they should feel welcome to do that. So, yeah, something like a get closer. Yeah, there we go. I have. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have a, a really uh, similar preference to you in, in look. My preference is like just um, a little bit of linseed oil or Danish oil, which is like it's not at, like Matt Polly is going to be a more durable, waterproof, whatever. But mm -hmm. I also have like an unfinished camera over there that's just like taken. Battle scar. It's a big box, eight by ten. It's taken battle yeah. scars from being a test bed for years, and it has like all sorts of. And I was thinking that it might be nice to have like all of the people who I photograph with it just sign the busted up wood, uh, you know, like uh, Billy Nelson's guitar. Uh, that would be very cool. And then shellac it like they do with the old uh, beat up pickups, right? You know, they they yeah grind off the paint, and then do a clear coat. Um, I've also got to say, I really love the aesthetic on your cameras. Of yeah. um, So I'm very Bauhaus about things. And like yeah. I built a long time ago. I'm, I am no stranger to building a flat pack. You know, mm. That's very nice looking. Well, so says you. Uh, Reddit says I am an ass for not sanding and finishing all of these box joints so this was like a drafting board briefcase that i made a while ago uh -huh. that has like a, a slot in here and reddit was just after me that i left all of these joints you know unfinished and exposed and like they they hated the look of it and like you know i don't leave on any char but i i, I will let it stay you know 
darker brown. And yeah. uh, I, I think it's very Bauhaus to show how the thing is goes together, right? And, and beautiful in its own right. And Absolutely. Um, particularly like with the thick bamboo and you have a lot of small joints. I, I dig that. I wonder um, how much of that was like an aesthetic choice versus like it's structurally very strong as well. And how much uh, you have gotten the internet telling you that it looks unfinished because you show some joints. So there's, there's three, three reasons that the joints exist as they do. Uh, the first, the most important is that uh, I'm not going to sand off all of the char because it's, it oh, aesthetically be, looks fantastic. I think so too. And it'd be yeah. $5,000 to sand yes. off everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let the, um, do that. Yeah, the other reason is that the way that the joints are designed, the cameras can only go together correctly one way. And that is with having all of the text outside. The biggest thing is that the pinholes on all four of the models are not centered in the camera. They're centered on the film plane. Oh. So yeah. where that those two diagonals on each film holder meet, that's where the pinhole's placed. So it's slightly off center vertically on each camera. If somebody were to put the front plate on upside down, when then they would end up with image being the image being cut off on part of the uh, the film so plane. It's impossible every time. to do so unless they build Correct. everything upside down. In which case, then they just get a right side up picture. Exactly. Yes. As, yeah. as long as all the text and it faces will be a out, negative. yes. <laughs> as, uh, as long as all of the text faces outside, the camera cannot go together incorrectly. Um, there is only one part of the camera right now that can go in either way, and that's the part that the film holders rest up against. And one side of those uses a thin ultra suede felt for light proofing, and then the other side uses a three millimeter thick wool felt for the light gasket. Eh, give me one of these kits. I'll figure out how to put it together backwards. <laughs> and and as long as people me. don't flip that piece around, they're going to be just fine. Uh-huh. Says you now. You're going to get Kickstarter emails for a year. I don't know. Mine came out like a pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> how come I don't have any text on the one you sent me? <laughs> but that's always an opportunity to have a interesting conversation with somebody about camera building. Um, okay, so I'm I'm gonna put both of you on on a, on the spot for design. Now I don't know if you guys listen regularly to the Lensless, but um, the Lensless podcast with Corey and okay, uh, and the self the 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 Salt Lord um, Andrew. But one of the things that they talk about quite often and one of the things that they talk a lot about with the guests is some of the results you can get with this and for those of you who don't know i'm holding up an undo which is a beautiful beautiful device it's an undo six by six it's the first generation undo six by six um but one of the things that they love is the fact that the the film plane or excuse me, let me say this uh, differently, the focal length, and of course, there really is no focal length on a, on a, uh, a pinhole, but sure the, the film, or the, the, the pinhole to lens distance gives them a distorted, different, unique view. It is consciously a pinhole camera. It is consciously something that is not a lensed four by five or a, or a, a lensed camera at all. 
and that they absolutely love that aspect of it. So number one, are you, uh, and I'm not saying that I'm speaking for the whole community because I'm not speaking for the whole community. I have a four You're by five. You're speaking for Simon and, and Johnny. Okay, well, right. <laughs> you know, here's a, here's a reasonable focal length uh, four by five box that I made out of hickory plank that is the hickory plank that's in my in my office here. Um, so I like that. But then also here I'm going to uh, hold up the Gorgon, um, which I've. I will, we're going to do a show about the Gorgon when I finish it, but this is the pinhole version of the Gorgon, which is, um, which has a, uh, a, a pinhole to film length of, of about 40 millimeters, but it's, it's a panorama that's 72 millimeters wide. So it is distorted and, and yes, I do get fall off and yes, I do get that. Are you planning uh, I'm going to ask David this first. Are you planning on something that addresses that kind of concern with the people who want the conscious pinhole versus the people who want the best fidelity out of a pinhole? Do you, and, and you can, you know, the Santa Barbara pinholes, the Leonardo pinhole are, are mostly normal focal lengths. Well, we'll go with normal. Yeah. Um, no, I know what you're talking about. I have three of the Andus, and I love the six by six. It's my favorite of the three of them. Oh, yeah, cold it is. Hand. It is a wonderful camera. <laughs> I think it's the best of the the Andu cameras by far. Yeah. Um, and I do appreciate the consciously pinhole aesthetic. Uh, it, the, the objective with this was a different aesthetic. So with this generation, that's a no. With future cameras, I'm not in any way, shape, or form opposed to it because I do like that look. Um, I also like the idea of using a pinhole camera to experiment with, um, dis with, with perspective distortion via magnification, right? Um, specifically the way that the magnification at the edge of the image cone is different from the magnification at the center of the image cone. And how can that be used to, uh, to create an image? So some of that requires things like the pinhole being able to move. And that's, that's mm -hmm. something I think is a fascinating idea um, that, that I have not successfully put into practice yet on, on one of my cameras. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to do with a four by five field camera, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I do really appreciate that, ed, that, that spectrum of, of the image aesthetic. It's just not something I put into to place with this lineup. Okay, okay. Um, uh, Ethan, do you have an answer or is the, or is the answer the same thing of the, uh, you know, my favorite, uh, Marilyn Manson lyric is, which is, I wasn't born with enough, enough middle fingers to all you pinholers. You've got my, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm the devil yeah. side. Um, no, I, so I optimize for different, although I yeah. also know exactly where David's coming from. So yeah. I think. Um, again, I'm, I'm not against sort of like experimental photography or, or, you know, weird pre-exposed or expired films, but generally where I at least like to start designing, unless it's a wacky Joe Van Cleve project is like making something that's high fidelity and, and, you know, uh, that, that is technically capable and then let people distort from there rather than giving them something distorted and making it impossible. Something uh, you know, technically uh -huh. clean. So, 
Um, cleanliness, sharpness is important to me. Even illumination is not important to me um, so much as focal length. So um, I offer both of these 4x5s and 8x10s in two lengths. And one is just sort of a standard wide that will have a very even illumination. The 90 millimeter 4x5 is going to look very sharp and clean. Um, but also, you know, embracing that pinhole. But what you can get out of a pinhole is like you can get crazy wide stuff where, you know, a lens that would do the same would be very expensive, large, and, you know, totally different. So um, I made a 45 millimeter uh, pinhole kit and also um, I think I did a 135 and a 210 on the pretty wide one. Um, and, you know, they will definitely have vignetting in the corners, but they also see bananas wide, like a 45 on a on a 4x5 or a 135 on an 8x10 is like, you know, I mean, the angle of view is yeah. <laughs> that. Um, and so, like, this is never going to have totally even illumination. Um, I mean, it covers pretty much the whole thing, but, um, yeah, I just I wanted to give people, like, a wacky wide lens if they wanted it um yeah <laughs> yeah it, it and and i think that is a ton of fun i mean honestly if um it, it, i i have often dreamed about getting you know super wide lenses on on um sheet film and they just are not cheap at all there's there's no option so re yeah, so pinholes really that's that's the entryway for people who want to shoot sheet film and to get going super wide Unless you're Matthew Joseph, uh, who wants wants well, a bespoke. Matthew Joseph has, uh, you know, a two hundred dollar camera dactyl OG that he put a twelve hundred dollar yes uh, <laughs> you know, angulon lens, super angulon XL, uh, and he takes some beautiful, very wide wow. pictures. It's a forty seven, yeah. right? And they're you know sharp and rectilinear. But yeah, okay, yeah. you know, I. I thought, you know, the, the common use of pinhole is like one, you have like about a standard or a slightly wide standard lens. And then what, you know, like you could make telephoto pinholes for looking at space or mountains or whatever, but those are big and cumbersome, not fun to carry around. And it's not how I like to shoot and having an ultra wide like that, you know, I don't really own any lenses. And, and it's really pretty simple. Like for instance, that my, all of mine shoot, all of my standard format ones shoot between with an, an area, a, a field of view that is equivalent to 18 to 22 millimeters in 35 millimeter terms. So they're, they're amply wide. wide. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it is also really possible to achieve an amply wide image with even illumination. Uh, it's, it's just mm -hmm. when you get to the extremes that the pinholes yeah. don't, yeah. don't deliver quite like an amply wide multi-element lens yeah. would. Yeah. I mean, I would say a 90 is probably... I don't know, the equivalent of a 24 to 28 on 4x5, depending upon whether you're doing horizontal or vertical. Uh, it, it, on, the, on the diagonal, so, I, so my 4x5 is a 90, and I think it's equivalent on the diagonal to a 22, but you know, shoot it like a 24 to a 28, and that gives you enough room to crop a little bit. So I think that shooting practice is, that's a, yeah, that's yeah. a good guide. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about the actual Kickstarter itself. It runs through. When is the uh, as we're us, recording? Oh, go ahead. Give us the uh, the important stats yeah. that you want people to know. Like what? And also, what to search? Well, here I'll tell them. 
here's what you're going to search. You're going to search either uh, David's name, so David Hancock on Kickstarter, or the other one is here. Th this one is called Large Format Pinhole Cameras to Build at Home. So Large Format Pinhole Cameras to Build at Home. That'll get you there. But then um, you, you're looking at like, I have no idea. <laughs> but but um, uh, it, tell us about what, um, you know, what your goal is. If this is successful, where are you going after that? What's yeah. the, because um, usually, you, you know, I mean, you could, you could just put this, these up on an Etsy shop or uh, an eBay shop and, and start selling them, but you're going through Kickstarter. And then one other can one other question, what's 5119? Okay. Um, so, so we'll, we'll answer the easiest one first, 5119 okay. cameras. In a former life, I was a real estate broker and uh -huh. I was going to be uh, working with a company that was going to buy up contaminated property remediate it, and then resell it to either commercial or residential standards for okay. use. Okay, daycares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah exactly, yeah. We're going we're gonna to take those PCB fields and turn them into daycares. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so I was in Illinois, and one of the rules about being a self-sponsoring real estate broker in Illinois is that you have to have a sign on your place of business with the business name. I was self-sponsoring at home. The development did not allow any business signages signage on houses. So I was in a bind. Um, and so I went out to the front of my house to start thinking and I realized I could see the number and uh, read, it, read it from the street. So I set up my business name as my house number. Oh man, that and, is a uh, beautiful workaround. And when I, when I started selling, and, and I always thought that was particularly clever. So when I started selling cameras on Amazon, I kept the uh -huh. name. When I, my Etsy shop has the same name. And uh, so I just decided that's going to be the, the brand of my, my, sure. my yes. Sure. And, uh, uh, in, yeah. and, and you work in marketing. So, um, uh, I, I, you know, I teach logo design. So one of the things that we talk about is you need a discoverable meaning. There's your discoverable meaning. Discoverable so. name, discoverable meaning. No, yeah. I'm the only camera shop I know of that starts off with a, a number. You know, there was a, there's another marketing company in San Francisco called, uh, 283 design or something like that yeah. you know, back in the old days of phone books that put you right up near the top of the list as well but um it's it's a distinction that a lot of that no one else that i'm aware of is really using so so i just adopted it and it's it's worked um i've had a lot of people think it's the elevation i live at because we're in denver but uh -huh. um and, and other theories like that Wait. but uh yeah is oh i guess that would be in feet i was in gonna feet, say yeah. aren't we off a uh, off a little bit in yeah. Um, so, so mine are number one cameras at one, yeah. one mile. Off. Yeah. Are they any good? No, but <laughs> number one. But, but they're made at a mile up. No. Yeah. But, um, but so that's where that came from. Then the why go to Kickstarter is to uh, so the, the Kickstarter campaign is the goal of it is go, going to be to enable me to develop the prototypes for the 120s. I do have a, a non-functional design prototype for the six by six, and mm -hmm. they have an entirely different image aesthetic or, or physical aesthetic rather. Mm -hmm. They are going to look like vintage radios and they're also going to be assemble at home kits. I, I, I don't have it accessible to me. They are, yeah. uh, I think the outside is stunning. Uh -huh. So, but they're also 
the, the whole lineup of those is going to be very time consuming to make. So if, if this campaign is successful, then I'll be able to afford to buy my own laser cutter next year that will be strong enough to cut through the material for the 120s, which is significantly smaller than the material that I'll be using on the uh, okay. on the bamboo cameras. And that'll be out on the deck of, you know, with the view of the front range. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where the smoke can be uh, not inside my apartment. There we go. There we go. All right. Um, okay, cool. And I love the idea of the 120s. Are you going down to 35? Do you have plans on 35? No. No, okay. um, the, the sole reason that's for that good being, because yeah. mine is 35, so I would have to beat you. No, no I have zero interest in going smaller than 120 solely okay. because, um, when you get into things like frame counting, unless you just want to do the stick a piece of plastic in and have it tick off, then, um, yeah, exactly. The I don't want to work out the gearing for that. And, uh -huh. and I know I could just open up a Lomography's one of their cameras and just steal their ideas, but yeah. I also don't want to be that guy. Sure. So, um, well, standing yeah. on the backs of, um, of Austrian giants, you know, I mean, uh, we all do it one way or another, you know? Uh, so yeah, anyway, of, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, none. I, I don't, honestly, none of my ideas in any of these cameras are, are newer than the hundred than the patents on them that expired 120 years ago. Yeah. So, uh, there's, there's no original ideas in the space realistically. Yeah. Um, but only only realistic design refinements or only original design refinements so so the 120s i want to have again be built at home and, and also the the image quality on a 120 is still really good by the time you get to a 35 it starts to get really soft i have mm -hmm. here i'll show you this guy i got this old pack set brawn this brawn pack set camera sure. um, the lens was broken off of it, so I just built a pinhole slide shutter for it. Uh -huh. And it takes 24 by 24 images because uh -huh. I masked off the um, the camera obscura on it. Uh -huh. I know With... a thing or two about 24 by 24. Yeah. I, lo I love 24 pictures. <laughs> they are honest... soft. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, they are they really uh, – is a 24 by 24 uh, pinhole camera – image softer than a disc camera uh, <laughs> good question depends on the disc camera yeah uh, fun, I, <laughs> fun on fact about disc cameras yeah. the camera lens with the highest line per millimeter rating ever recorded was on a disc camera really yes unfortunately disc film was commercial grade film and couldn't keep up with that lenses 2500 line per millimeter rating Wow. Yeah. I forget which model camera it was. It was one of the Kodaks. Yeah. So, um, but uh, at, at any rate, yeah. So the, the other factor is like with a four by five, you're, when you display it on social media, you're going to reduce that negative. So it functionally becomes sharper. But when you're sure. talking about 35 or 120, it's going to get enlarged and it amplifies the softness. So yeah. you've got to really, really embrace that pinhole aesthetic on 35 millimeter and, and that combined with the the mechanical complexity it's it's not something not not an alleyway i want to venture down okay i can understand that my aesthetic is that i absolutely love that um uh that i love to see grain the size of my eye you know 
um, if I'm taking a self-portrait. Um, so, I mean, you know, and, and teach his own. Uh, and I don't have any problem with that. And that's one of the things um, about Pinhole that I absolutely love is that there is a freedom and there is an allowance from the viewer on what they are seeing. Um, if, if they understand the pinhole, um, aesthetic, you know, that, that they are going to, uh, say, you know, Hey, that's not sharp, but that is okay. Yep. Um, you know, so, so there's, there's that. I also love handheld pinhole. You know, so I'm not going. I'm I'm not going for tack sharp. I'm yeah. going for for washes. Um, so anyway, um, so uh, okay. So you you're you're thinking about going. In, can I ask one question um, uh, about your direction being um, okay? So you're going for this this laser cutter idea. Um, that is pretty much flat, packed, flat, square, rectangle, 90 degrees, you know, I mean, you, you could do some different things, but, you know, I, I'm going to hold up the undo again. And they went, um, CNC, um, uh, CAD, you know, uh, router, uh, systems, is there a reason why you like that flat pack approach as opposed to the the router approach? Yeah, one of the things is that with a CNC router, it's a different design. You have to account for the wider drill bit uh, design and things like that. It's also, like, I'm not a, an industrial designer or an engineer mm -hmm. by trade. Uh, all of this I'm teaching myself as I go. And a lot of that CNC stuff is above and beyond my design yeah. and engineering it's also just wildly expensive. Yes. Well, okay, it's wildly expensive, boxes. but the cheapest home laser is much more expensive than the cheapest home router that will do wood. Um, so yeah, but but uh, you don't really. I I think we'll do that, wood and we'll do wood at the the sort of uh, precision and 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 it's not just like the cost of the tool is the cost of running the tool and how sure. many parts uh, you get. Like CNC, people think you just say camera and push a button and it makes you a camera out of a block of wood, but like it, it is a much, it much, much more involved product to make yeah. a undo over one of these. Much. Yeah. And they had a team of, I want to say it was eight people working for months to build their cameras. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, they do them in back. And, and they are beautiful. I do think the undos are probably the most beautiful pinhole cameras I've ever seen made. I um, agree. Yeah, they I have agree. an amazing hands, eye for design. Hands, hands down, they rule. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. So, so it's, it's basically, it's just a matter of what I have access to and, sure. and what I can make that's easy for people to build at home. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that build at home component, making it your own, um, is definitely something that I, uh, I see as attractive. So... Been, uh, uh, thank you. So, yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So, uh, is there anything else you want to tell us about? Is there uh, anything else about the uh, Kickstarter? Anything else you want to tell us about um, 
uh, we've uh, talked about your your YouTube channel quite a bit. We've talked about the panels. We've talked about the aesthetics. Um, uh, we've talked about different approaches. So, is there anything else that's um, that's in your uh, in your brain? You got to get out. I got to get no. out. Before. Not not today. I think that is. Uh pretty much okay. it. Yeah, that was everything. I mean, honestly, we've covered everything and more that I talk about in the campaign and, and uh, everything. So. All right. Yeah. So uh, I want to say a couple of shout outs. One of them is to Ben Reynolds and Duve Khrushchev um, and Nicole Small, who all um, tuned in to the, uh, to the YouTube live uh um and uh and yeah um and uh ben wanted uh, a link to the kickstarter it'll be in the show notes but uh i'll i'll throw him a link to the kickstarter here in a second as well there we go did did they have any questions for me that i can answer um there are no questions other than the post the link duve says um uh, good to have your you on the podcast. I've learned so much from your film reviews. Best on the internet. Thank uh, you. So, uh, so yeah, that's and Ben just waved. <laughs> okay, so um, I think now's a good time, David. Where can people find you? And if you have any shout outs, let's let's do those. And we'll, yeah. We'll um, so, firstly, I, I, I people can find me at my YouTube channel, David Hancock, or on my uh, my Amazon or Etsy store, fifty one nineteen cameras, and I also use Instagram intermittently under my name and my dog's name, Steinbeck Hancock. If you do, if you just want to see photos of my dog, I it's do. Steinbeck Hancock. Can I do look that up right now? Very good, Graham. Where can uh, people find you on the internet? Um. Hang on a second. Uh, Steinbeck.Hancock, there we go. Beautiful chocolate lab. Yeah, um, yeah he's a lab pointer mix. He's adorable. And oh, okay. do, you have, do you have a minute for a few shout outs? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes, okay. absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I do want to firstly thank the backers who have backed so far on the campaign because it, it means tons to me whether we succeed or not, you believe in this project. Mm -hmm. uh, also, so the people who have really helped me with this campaign, uh, Eric and Jim, you guys and my brother Chad, who were all very helpful uh, with feedback on the camera usability and the design. Uh, Andrew, of course, from Andrew and Danae, and Dan from the Shawnee Union channel, and, I, and uh, the Pinhole Facebook group. All of those those people were very helpful, and my wife, who tolerated so much in the way of these cameras over the last three years, uh, she has been an absolute saint when it comes uh, to that. So, yeah. Okay. Cool. Um... Uh, one of and also don't, don't we at this point say hey you gotta press like and subscribe okay no, oh, no. yeah just, like, uh, like and subscribe just tell them tell them where people can find you Graham let's wrap this thing up no uh, well I've got one more shout out uh, shout out to uh, to Jonas Kolmatorn. Um he sent me a message yesterday uh, hey how's it going um, you can get a hold of me uh, Graham at homemadecamera.com. I am Graham Homemade Camera on Instagram. Uh, Nick is not here. Nick is uh, out camping, enjoying the great wilderness. Um, he is uh, Nick at HomemadeCamera.com, and he is Avi. No, he's Nick Lyle on Instagram or Avi Nick. He's Avi Nick. Nick Lyle, uh, whichever one. Um, 
And uh, how do we get a hold of Mr. Camerodactyl? Uh, you can find me at camerodactyl.com and my flat pack camera kits and Instagram is at camerodactyl. You guys <laughs> okay. ready? Um, and we want to say, we want to say um, uh, thank you uh, very much to Robbie Cribs of Soundtrap Studios. He composed our music, lets us use it. And, uh, and thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie.